Right, we're going to make a start. And um, just welcome you again uh, to tonight's St. Peter's. I understand it's snowing outside heavily. Is, we have a new Pope as well, Pope Francis, yes, who is the uh, Pope from uh, Argentina. So that's happy. He's a cardinal, sorry, he's the cardinal from Argentina. He's now become the Pope of the world. Um, and yeah, he's. Uh, we know a little bit. We, we think he's a good choice. I've got very. I've got a very holy voice on tonight. <laughs> he's. Um, he's. He's. He's a good choice of pope. Um, he's famous for for real service, and um, he, he was. He was famous recently, I think, uh, for. Yeah, work, spending some time working in, AIDS, in an AIDS uh, hospital and for kissing and washing all of the uh, patients' feet, which was um, seen as a very big, was a very big, very humble kind of sign. Um, yeah, he's, he's a, so, so we, we, you know, <laughs> we're all, Jesu- you know, we, we all really come from, you know, if you're a, um, the, the Protestant movement that we're part of is, has, has its roots in the Jesuit tradition which is very interesting because the Jesuits went on to be a bit wild in the aisles and there's something called the, it was the Spanish Inquisition which they were very keen on. They became very, very legalistic but back in the day um, they were actually, they were, they were focused on service and, and on the gospel and so um, there's, lots of great, uh, there's lots of great Jesuits still. Obviously they had, the, they had a bit of a rum patch um, just around the period of the Reformation but uh, they, 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 their focus is on yeah, biblical Christianity and an active service. So I think he's a good choice. I think it's great to have someone from the developing world. Uh, I think it's really, really good to have someone out of Europe. Um, and I think there's been far too much politics um, obviously going on during um, the last administration. So let's hope for a bit more of a, a peaceful period uh, in the Vatican. Excellent. Right. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's get stuck into our peaceful periods together. Dan, you're going to have to sort something out here. I'm still sounding very echoey. I don't know why I am. It sounds too echoey. Yes, I know he's just sorting it out now. Um, great. Well, welcome to the final session of the Minor Soul course. And um, it's great to have you here. It's uh, congratulations again for making it the whole distance. And um, it's going to warm up a little bit. I'm not going to turn the heaters off tonight, Thelma, so don't worry. The, the, it's, it's, it's a great opportunity for us to spend you know, the final hour and a half together um, really kind of punching out with ideas of actually how can we take what we've learnt and apply it and begin to kind of make steps forward in, in, in life at whatever stage we're at. Um, when we finished last week, we, uh, I, I talked through about this cycle of uh, making new appraisals and this traffic light idea that... Um, that when negative thoughts come through our mind, through the subconscious stream of our mind, uh, we react, um, we remember what we've learnt about the way in which we're processing, and then we begin to reappraise, and we find new ways of getting out of old problems. And then, um, if we're going to step into the future, what, what the hope is tonight is that we, we develop a level of robustness um, and we, we, in, 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 the sort of, in the mental health world, we talk about emotional resilience. And, and what I want to say to you tonight is, you've learned a lot over this course. You know, in some ways, I could say you've learned too much. A little bit of knowledge is quite a dangerous thing. And um, you've learned a lot. There's been a lot of aha moments for several of you. You've gone, oh, okay, I'm quite stuck like that. I kind of realised that's, that's how I've been working. At the same time, this is an introduction to emotional health, and this isn't a kind of alternative to 
um, further work, which as I've said several times during the course, some of you might want to engage in. So when we think about um, you know, athleticism, you, you might have watched in the Olympics, uh, particularly our, our, our friend, the, the, the Mobot, the mighty Mobot, um, who, was, who was running both a 5,000-meter race and a 10,000-meter race and won gold in both races. Now, in my mind, that athleticism, it, personally speaking, I know people have different opinions, is far superior to the Usain Bolt experience of athleticism which is running over 100 metres, because one, one requires incredible strength and speed, but the other one requires strength, speed, and incredible endurance. And, and obviously, there's, uh, we could argue about this physiologically, of course, there's endurance that's needed for 100 metres run at that sort of pace. But, but 5,000 metres, you cannot escape from the pain. 10,000 metres, you definitely cannot escape from the pain. And winning both races demonstrates incredible endurance. And when you looked into, into, um, into the training schedule uh, that Mo Farah was engaging in, it was absolutely astronomical. The guy was running, well, over 100 miles a week, every week, week in, week out, for years and years and years. But, but in this recent training schedule building up to the Olympics, he was running 100 miles a day. Uh, you know, several days of the week. So he'd go out, run 100 miles in a day, and then he'd have a rest day, and then he'd run another 100 miles the day after. And he did that several times in the week. In some weeks, he was running, you know, sort of three, 400 miles. And um, I was talking about this. A friend of mine is, is, is into ultra marathons, and he was running a marathon in, uh, through the Amazon jungle relatively recently. And, and he, he was doing a similar thing, and, I was saying, and he was running sort of 100 miles in a day along the south bank, along the Thames path, to get ready for this. And he said, you know, the thing is, you have to develop this ridiculous level of resilience and kind of endurance. If you're going to run a marathon in the jungle, you've got to be able to run 100 miles in the city. And, and what, what I want to say to you, the same is true with our emotional health. I, I've, I've kind of introduced some principles and some ideas the trouble is, if you haven't got emotional resilience, at the first point of resistance, at the first real challenge, you're going to go, oh, this is too hard. Actually, I'm going to default back to what I've always done. Some of you friends, I'm not going to name names, but some of you are, uh, uh, you know, in, moving into your 60s and, 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 and beyond. And... Um, that means that you have learnt and reaffirmed various processes in, and patterns of thinking over an incredibly long period of time. Now, it is so easy to default back to old behaviours uh, in the heat of a moment. And actually, what this course is about is about saying, actually, at the end of the day, can we develop an emotional resilience that can help us to kind of keep running through the change? So a lot of tonight's focused upon achieving future goals and greater freedom on the basis of developing a kind of an attitude and a mindset which is more resilient and more determined, if you like. And, and there's various things you're going to have to hear from me tonight, some of which you'll, you won't like so much, others of which you will think uh, are quite helpful and uh, hopefully you'll hold on to. The, the, the key point is growing and training and developing always involve a level of pain. That, that's the, the kind of the first bad, the first difficult message. You know, if we're going to live life more freely, it does involve some short-term pain. You know, if we're actually going to break through this barrier, we have to run hard in training in order to find on, the, on race night we can actually uh, achieve uh, our ends. Well, the first thing I want to introduce you to tonight, um, tool-wise, is to recognise that 
that in, in processing life's challenges, Dan, could you just shut that door? We just get a bit more heat, heat coming through. Um, in, 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 in engaging with life's processes, cognitive behavioural therapy has a, a helpful um, model, which we call the vicious flower. This is in my book, The Worry Book, if you've, you might have seen it here before. Um, but the vicious flower is, is a helpful idea because it shows us how actually the cycle of cognition, the cycle of thinking, I'll explain what these things are, you won't be able to see them from where you are right now, is that, is that um, behaviours and experiences feed one another and increase the core um, meaning that they carry. So uh, we, uh, we go back to Sue at the water cooler, the experience of Sue, the way we process Sue's kind of offhand look away from us, her turning her shoulder against us, uh, the, the way we process that information determines ultimately the key thoughts and meanings that we carry about Sue in our relationship with her. Now, it's not, it's not that everyone in that situation would have the same outlook. It's that we have particular attention focus, so we're looking for certain clues in the physical. We have physical sensations within us sometimes, so we actually have physical feelings which will tell us that something negative is happening, particularly in the realm of anxiety disorders, people start feeling clammy, panicky, breathing lightly, start feeling disorientated and the like. Uh, then we have actual behaviours that we are engaging with, defensive behaviours like saying, you know, Sue, are you okay? Are you, are you off with me? Trying to sort it out. And then we have the emotions that are feeding all of this. Maybe we ourselves are feeling low, feeling depressed, uh, feeling isolated or feeling sensitive to rejection. All of the petals on the flower ultimately feed the core beliefs and ideas, the sense of meaning. And, and, and these things aren't statically in the middle. The middle also feeds the petals, yeah? So the flower grows up and strengthens itself. It's, it's what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. So, so the different aspects of ourselves in action will feed the core thoughts and meanings that we carry, but also the petals themselves, the outlying areas of, 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 of intuition, will, will themselves add to the key thoughts and meanings. These things feed one another. It's a two-way flow. And, and for all of us, we will have a default vicious flower. And, and, and the way I'd help you to identify this is, when you are really tired and at the end of your tether, what do you do? Yeah? When you're tired and at the end of your tether, what do you tend to do? What, what's your sort of typical default? Some people will find themselves getting very angry and their anger will start in, it's sort of informing their key thoughts and those meanings. So they'll start saying things like, oh, life's really difficult. People are always ganging up on me. I can never do anything right. So they, they, they move here from the emotions into the key thoughts and meanings. And then their attention focus starts looking around for other examples of this. Have you noticed how people group things in threes? And they say things like, bad things always happen in threes? They don't. It's not true. It's a literary technique that we all use. We love to grab things and put them into groups of three. So every sermon has three points. You know, every idea has three reasons why we should do it. In, in life, you'll see every advertiser use three ways, three superlatives to describe their product. It, we find it helpful and useful, humanly speaking, to group things into threes. So trouble does not come in threes. You find it helpful and useful to group trouble into the groups of threes because it sounds nice and it feels right. 
So when you say trouble happens in threes, your attention focus is looking for three examples of why you're being persecuted or why you should be angry, yeah? So there's nothing to do with trouble happening in threes. Physical sensations of our anger might be that we begin to feel physical tension and we might start clamping our hands together. Now that's a recipe for disaster because we're sending signals to our mind that we're primed for action and we start increasing our blood flow, we start getting buoyed up with anxiety and with adrenaline and we're ready to start punching someone. So why do people flip out? Well, they've already started here, they've moved to here and then they've got to here. And lots of domestic violence sadly happens through this cycle of the vicious flower. And then we see an outworked behaviour which might be throwing a punch, smashing a plate, you know, being in some way reckless or dangerous, or, or maybe not, maybe a defensive behaviour. But the, but the idea there is just as using anger as an example, all of these things inform the key thoughts and meanings. Now the reason I'm showing this, this is a, this is a kind of, a, 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 the vicious flower obviously isn't a good thing. The reason I'm showing you this is at the start of tonight, we had to kind of recognise in this very safe and very kind of clinical almost environment, there's nothing potentially pressing your buttons particularly. I mean, I might be pressing your buttons, but you can always walk out if you want to, which would be a good example of this coming into action. But it's, it's, it's relatively neutral. No one is provoking you. This is okay, and we're being very theoretical. But when you go out into the world tomorrow, you're going to try and put this stuff into action. And all of this subconscious processing is happening as you're going through life. It's happening in your relationships. It's happening in your workplace. It's happening in your life here at church, if you attend this church. It's happening with your children, with your partner, if you have one. It's happening on your own, on your with your friends, on the bus. This, this piece of work is always going on. And, and, and what, what cognitive behavioural therapy says and what, what we're trying to say through the Mind and Soul course is actually we can affect and change aspects of this flower to reinform the centre with new thoughts and new meanings. So the vicious flower doesn't need to be vicious anymore. We can actually ask bigger questions about the emotions that we're feeling. We can shift our attention and make more realistic appraisals of what we're looking for. We can actually understand our physical bodies better and therefore be more complementary in the way in which we approach physical sensations and the emotions and we can adapt our behaviour. CBT is basically cognitive and behavioural change. So we're thinking differently and then we're beginning to behave differently. And what that does is it interrupts the cycle of value. At the centre of this flower are core feelings and core beliefs, many of which relate to some of the early work we've done about the ego and the id and the superego, familial relationships, family relationships, parental relationships, everything that's held in the unconscious and the pre-conscious. They have been informed, they're, informed, they're informing this centre of the flower. So we're not starting with a neutral flower, we're starting with a flower that's already established, but through greater observation, we can be more realistic and therefore we can begin to adapt and change the flower. So what we're starting to do is look at how moving forward in my life can I begin to behave differently and think differently and therefore the centre of me will be informed differently. Remember the mind and soul motto is if you change something you will change something and any one of these petals that's altered will have a direct impact on the centre of the flower. If you start to change your emotion or challenge your emotion, your thoughts about those emotions will change. If you begin to shift your focus, your thoughts and emotions will change. If you shift 
your, your, your sense of panic about physical sensations, your emotions will change. If you change your behavior, then actually you'll begin to change your emotions and thoughts around those behaviors. So this is a model for change. Does anyone want to come back to me on this or, or, or misunderstand this in any way? We, we, we've tried to sort of re-establish this principle every week in a way. Anita? Absolutely, yeah. So you've, you, Anita's saying that she's heard about the, the thoughts and the emotions uh, and the behaviours before in CBT, but she hasn't heard so much about attention focus. I've, taught, I've talked a bit on this course about attention bias. And, 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 and attention bias is just a helpful thing if we just kind of clue you in on that. This is the idea that in any setting, we have a bias to see certain things which, we'll, which, which we're expecting to see, okay? So, sometimes you will have had the experience of you are just, you're doing the crossword and you're looking for a word and the radio is on quite quietly in the background and then you, you get the word in your mind but then it sounds like you've just heard the word on the radio. Uh, you might have had an experience like that or where, you've, um, where you're, you're walking down the street and you, you thought you heard someone call your name. Uh, or you're in the supermarket and, and you're looking for a product and then, and then you, there's lots of background noise, but you almost hear, you, you kind of think, oh, did someone just say tomato ketchup? Well, they didn't, actually. What they did, they said to their friend was, oh, have you caught up with me yet? But your mind is looking for the word tomato ketchup, so it colludes with the background noise to create the word tomato ketchup. You, you didn't hear your name called, Parvane. You heard the man say, hey, move this paving slab over here, will you? Because uh, he was just working on the street. But you were expecting the word Parvane because that's your name. So then you heard that made up. It's colluded with your environment to create the word. That sort of a collusion is uh, common now with a disorder we call ringsiety, which is, um, you might have also experienced. Ringsiety is when you're desperately sure that your mobile phone has just gone off and you fiddle around in your handbag and you pull out your phone and actually it's not ringing. But you were sure that your phone had started ringing. And actually what's happened is that you, you're primed, you have a bias towards the ring tone of your phone, and so when certain pitch sounds in your environment collude together with the expectation and the anticipation of that sound in your mind, you hear your phone ringing. Your phone isn't ringing. What you are is you're receiving, your, you're receiving the stimulus which locks onto your attention bias which then colludes with your mind to provide you with a ringtone that actually is not ringing. Okay? Does that make sense? Now, this is just an indication of how clever your mind actually is. That, that's not to say that people here suddenly worried you're not having hallucinations. Hallucinations is something very different. Hallucinations is the, is, 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 are, are complexly constructed sounds in an environment where there isn't any stimulus. Okay? Collusion is actually where your mind is colluding with the sounds present in an environment to create a sound that's familiar or meaningful to you. Okay? Now, that's a helpful point, Anita, when it comes to this idea of attention bias, because actually it, it indicates just how powerful our minds are tuned in to receive certain messages. Yeah? So if I said to you, stop, that word in itself creates a reaction where you're going, okay, okay, hold on, I have to do something right now. Now, it's hardwired in you that that stop word will have an impact on you, and it doesn't matter what you're doing, particularly if you're moving, the word stop shouted by anyone will have an impact on you because your mind has got an attention bias towards the word stop. Now, 
that's all very interesting, isn't it? But behind all this are attention biases which are more emotionally regulated. So, some person who has, for example, self-esteem issues, and we work with sometimes people who have body dysmorphic disorder, they, they, they are looking for words which are very negative about themselves. Words like ugly, uh, or unpleasant, or, or whatever it is. You know, any sort of derogatory word about their physicality. So what they do is, in every environment, they're looking for those words. And what happens is they're in the, you know, they're in the, in the sort of, in the, in the boutique, and, and some girls are messing around and says, oh, that's really ugly. And they immediately go, oh, I'm really ugly. So actually they've heard someone say a dress or, or a handbag is really ugly, but they've actually received that through their attention bias to say you're really ugly. And they spend the rest of the day hearing that again in their minds, actually, you're really ugly. And, and attention bias can lead people to do all sorts of things. They can, if they fear rejection, they can be looking for clues, physical and, and verbal, from people saying you're rejected. Uh, if it comes down to um, you know, group work, someone's terrified about being asked to do something, they're, they're constantly expecting that someone's going to say, can you contribute? So every time in the group someone leans towards them, they immediately cross themselves and sort of turn their backs because they think someone's going to say, can you make a contribution? All of that stuff is about attention focus or attention bias. So we basically we're tuned to be attentive to particular things in our environment which we typically find negative, and then we, we, we will react against them. We heighten their importance, and therefore they have a greater dominance over us. Um, there's a very frustrating um, aspect of the generalized anxiety disorder that I struggle from, um, which has heightens my ability to hear. So my, my, I, I can, I, my, my Andrea, who I work with, gets very frustrated because I can basically hear everything that she's saying next door. And, and she, she comes in and she goes, how on earth did you hear that? Like, she'll, she'll have the door closed, my door closed, and then she will recounting a conversation. I'll say, oh, yeah, they're doing this, 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 and this. And she goes, how did, how did they even do that? Um, and uh, that, that's part, it's called 4S. Uh, it uh, sounds... Uh, soft sound sensitivity syndrome is part of my generalized anxiety disorder. And it's, um, it's about my attention focus being very, very high on particularly envir environmental stimulants. Now, what I find is when I'm tired, this really tunes in. Whereas I'm relaxed and rested, this really tunes out. Yeah? So I find that, that my 4S experience is massively impacted by where I'm at here but this can be hugely exacerbated, yeah? So we all, we all have a way in which we are struggling uh, relative to these things. Okay, so is, is that helpful, Anita, that to kind of give you... The, the way to treat your attention bias is to, is to recognise that this stuff isn't coincidental, yeah? That actually there are reasons why you're noticing certain things. There are reasons why you're looking and receiving certain clues. And they come from within you. They aren't from without you. So if you think that they're without you, you think that bad things happen in threes. But if they're from within you, you're thinking, actually, I'm grouping things here, and actually there aren't just three bad things. Okay? So it's about owning it, recognizing it, and valuing it. Great. Now, before we move on to nicer, well, before we move on to developing this emotional resilience, I want to uh, show you a very important piece of work. Um, by a woman called Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. 
and many of you will have come across this before, but this is Kubler-Ross's uh, grief cycle. And, um, and the reason I'm showing this on this course, and I'm going to explain it, don't worry about the small print, that's, uh, that's just for me. The reason I'm, 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 I'm going to use this model is to, just to show you something about emotional resilience and to help you moving forward into the future. So I use this grief cycle a lot because I obviously work with a lot of people who, who are sadly bereaved. And it's incredibly helpful to help those people to know what they might expect if they are in the process of bereavement. Now, it's completely useless telling them in advance or telling you guys in advance, if you are sadly bereaved, you will go through this process because it will mean absolutely nothing to you unless you're actually in this process, okay? But as, 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 as a visual aid towards developing emotional resilience, it can help you. What we have here is the emotional response, if it's an active response or a passive response. So there's two sorts of emotional responses we can engage in. Really active, I can shout at you, Ali. Or really passive, I can just be silent towards you and, and kind of sit back. Okay, so there's two sorts of responses, an active emotional response or a passive emotional response. And what we've marked out here is the mean line, which is the timeline, and this is the line of kind of, of, of equal balance. If you lived your life on this line, it would be incredibly boring. Okay? That's just really important to know. The aim of your emotional experience is not to flatline. That everyone's emotional experience will fluctuate between the, the positive, the active, and, and, and the passive. Not that one is necessarily positive or negative, but below the line here is typically the more painful areas of, of your experience, okay? All of this has value and is important to you. And recognizing that you're going to come up against these struggles in the future will help you to, again, develop emotional resilience. This point here is the, the stability point. This is where the person started, then they experience a bereavement, and they move from stability straight down into immobility. If you've ever worked with someone who's been bereaved, if you've been bereaved, you remember that initially, even when you've heard the news that someone you love has passed away, you begin at that point with organizing and being quite stable, and it actually hasn't sunk in yet. And then you move from that into immobility, when you're really falling apart, and actually you can't do anything. You just, you're just sitting on the sofa, and you're just, you feel totally broken. And then you can move from immobility straight back across the line, and then you move into the anger phase. And the anger phase is often really powerful, it's really overwhelming, and it's often, it's often explosive towards all sorts of people. Um, you know, not people necessarily uh, uh, identify with your circumstance. You pass through uh, an area, either one way or another, called denial. Again, as you cross the line, this actually hasn't happened to me. Normally, before anger kicks in, there's denial. Actually, I don't believe this is happening. And then there's the sudden, oh, this is happening, and I'm really angry about it. And then from anger, it moves into bargaining, which is sort of the idea that we play in our minds between, well, this is happening, and actually I can move on, and actually maybe if I got this part of my life sorted, things would start to feel better. This sort of exchange idea. I've lost something, maybe I can gain something. I've lost something, maybe there's something that can replace this. People, lots of people buy dogs and cats after they've lost someone that they love. That's the bargaining phase. I'm going to get a pet. I'm going to invest in friendships. I'm going to join the bridge club. And then moving into depression, which is the kind of, I'm not really getting over the change, and actually I can't really move on with this. And then out of the depression very often comes the exit point of this experience, which moves into acceptance. 
through testing. Am I going to be okay? Am I going to be okay? And then finally, I can accept this change and I can move on. I've counseled people who've been in this grief cycle for five years and for six months. You know, I've had people, and there's people I'm still working with today who've been bereaved for a long time, who are still in this cycle five years down the line, and I've, I've seen people go through this in six months. Um, the key point tonight for you is to recognise that all of this is normative and actually helpful. This is applied to grief, but actually I'd say in, in, in many of life's circumstances, particularly in their traumatic stages, we will go through this phase. We will go through some of these stages in, to, to, to a greater or lesser degree. And, and, and with that in mind, part of, of creating emotional resilience in you is acknowledging that actually there is value in all of these stages of being. The reason I'm showing you this is to say that actually people think that immobility is weak, but actually psychological rest and immobility is sometimes a great strength. You know, some psychoanalysts argue that you know, some catatonic states of depression are actually the healing state, that actually in a catatonic state where someone can't speak, can't move, can't talk, can't walk, their mind is actually being healed in that place of silence. And that without that place of silence, they really wouldn't survive. You see this in animals too. Actually, when they, when they go silent, you know, if they've had an operation, we've had, kind of seen that in pets at home, you know, they go through this total, silent, still, I'm almost dead stage for quite a while after an operation, and then suddenly they come back to life again. You know, it's not weak to be immobile. It's actually a strength. And if you had a broken leg and it was you know, in a really bad way, the doctors might strap it to the ceiling and pull a few wires and you'd be lying there immobile for it to rest and heal. This has value. Anger has real value. It's not a negative emotion, as I've said throughout this course, and it's not something that's not for Christians. The Bible says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not sin by being angry. It doesn't say, do not sin by being angry. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Completely different things. You know, God says, in your anger, do not sin. He doesn't say your sin is a bag of anger. So we need to recognize that actually anger is a gift from God. How we use that emotion and how we express that emotion, that has consequences. But that's true for all of the emotions. So it actually has value. And depression as well has real value. Again, it's a huge mistake to think that depression is just a disease that some people have. And the worst parody of our society is that people who have depression are kind of, you know, they just, they just need to pull their socks up and get on with it. You know, that's just not true. That is not real uh, and, and it's not good. Depression is often a, a change realized. You know what? There's actually nothing different between the grief cycle and the depression cycle, nothing at all. The, the, the expression of grief and the expression of depression are nearly always exactly the same in some circumstance. Well, obviously, depressions vary, but you can take the grief cycle and you can take the depression cycle, and they totally match. You know what makes grief grief and depression depression? Is that one was catalyzed by someone dying and the other one wasn't. That's it. So the difference between grief and depression is that one was catalyzed by someone dying and the other one wasn't. And, and it's really, really helpful for you to know that, 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 again, biblically, we see mourning has great value. You know, all of the disciples and the women who visited Jesus at the tomb, they were in the middle of the grief cycle. What was weird for them was they just probably got to this stage, and then suddenly we see a resurrection. So it kind of broke up for them. 
You know, they, they, they were just coming, they'd done the immobility bit and the women were just running back to the tomb and they were just about to do the anger bit and then suddenly, pow, the grief cycle's broken because Jesus has been raised from the dead. So that was an interesting grief cycle. But, but, but depression has value. And, um, you know, this can be hard for people who st- struggle with cyclical depression. And they can say, well, what am I learning from this? And, and I can't answer that question, but what I can say is somehow in the emotions, depression sometimes can regulate people towards dealing with change. It's obviously, there's a difference between being stuck somewhere and moving through something. And in, in the psychological world, we say that moving through something is healthy. Getting stuck in a place is not so healthy. But I, I, I'm, I'm really encouraged by friends who, who suffer from cyclical depression, and I see their courage in moving through. Some of you are here tonight. And you, you, know, you move through the depths of darkness and despair into a place of change. And, and for you, that cycle is a bit more dramatic. For other people, they have a few down days and then they're back up again. But the key thing is you're moving through. This all has value. And the great shame for me as a Christian leader is when people, um, you know, they, 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 they categorize these things as being a disaster. And, and only these things, you know, only stability is a good emotion. Right, let's take a break. We'll take five minutes. Have a breather. Talk to your friends. Grab another cup of coffee. There's some at the back or one of those delicious uh, chocolate uh, chocolate items that we had on the way in and I'll give you uh, we'll just start again at 25 past so you can just have a little break okay okay let's um let's get started back great okay so we've done we've done a little bit of um you know we've done a, a little bit of of the hard yards apologies to you if that piece on grief kind of just stirred you up like uh, I, I don't I'm not I'm not wanting to use that example flippantly. I know that some of you, of course, have experienced bereavement. Maybe looking at that cycle again might make you feel uncomfortable. But it might, even though we experience a little bit of pain maybe while we look at that cycle, you will also, I hope, find it beneficial to know that you, you've actually gone through, either you're going through or you've gone through that process. Uh, and you can, you can be rightly pleased with yourself as you're journeying through that process because it's not easy. And this stuff isn't easy. But actually to know that your mind and your experience uh, is, is, you know, it's, it's moving in the right direction. And um, just to kind of encourage yourself with that internal narrative. I mentioned last week a bit about the in- inner critic. Um, I just remind you of that again, that internalized voice, the superego, uh, the inner critic that says, well, oh, you know, that those emotions are rubbish or you shouldn't be stuck here, or you know, if you had any guts about you, you would have moved on by now. All those sort of statements. They are all, they are the inner critic, they're not worth listening to, they aren't good for you, and it's just about saying, actually, I'm gonna make a new appraisal of that. I'm gonna offer myself a level of compassion and encouragement. I'm gonna speak good things over my life. And as Christian, I believe God speaks good things over your life that you can hold on to too, uh, that you're precious, that you're his child, that you can hold on to his strength. So try and bear that in mind. Now, I'm, we're going to send you out into the big wide world and next week you're going to be thinking, all oh, right, I've got to put this stuff into practice now. I'm going to remember it. Uh, what, one, of the, one of the linchpins to putting the stuff into practice and moving forward is, is, is clearing the minefield. And I talked to you several times about this idea of prepare now. If you fail to prepare, you're prepared to fail. If you prepare now, 
and then you get ready in your mind for what you're going to do in circumstance, circum, certain circumstances, you'll be ready to put that stuff into practice when it happens. It's no good just thinking, oh, I've got all these latent principles within me now, so when I go through a really tough, tough patch, I'm just going to behave completely differently. That's probably not going to happen. If you've thought this, th this stuff through and you've, you've kind of dwelled on it and you've, kind of, you've tried to put strategies in place or you've practiced or role-played, we say in our mind, you know, we, we, we role-play, we do emotional experiments, we can begin to make significant changes in real life. But stress is one of the things which will disable your ability to find significant opportunity to change. You will all experience stress. No one is stress-free. Okay, so everyone, even the most laid-back surfer dude of California, is stressed in some way or other. He's probably stressed that the waves aren't big enough, or he can't, he's not quite sure where his next meal is coming from, or you know, he's stressed that there's some music on the radio that he doesn't like. You are stressed about whether or not your kids are going to get fed, or whether you're going to lose your job, or whether you're going to be able to pay your, 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 your tax, or whatever it is. You're stressed about different things, but every person experiences stress. Is stress bad? No. Stress is not bad. Stress actually is a helpful catalyst to action. Without stress, we would not achieve anything. However, there are ranges of stress, from appropriate stress to inappropriate stress. You cannot determine what stress you're going to be under because you cannot predict what life is going to hold. The only thing you can do is to use this principle of emotional resilience to try and slightly stress-proof yourself and say, actually, when stress comes my way, which it will, how am I going to deal with the stress that I'm facing? Stress you know, is, is, is a catalyst. It's not the reason, but it's a catalyst towards many of the spectrum emotional health disorders that we see today. And some of the more serious and enduring are catalyzed by stress. Uh, not, that, not that they can be catalyzed by stress on their own, but often there has to be a propensity factor before stress comes in and, and leads people into certain activities and behaviors and thought patterns. You will all already be excellent at managing stress. You might not think that you're excellent. Your line manager might not think that you're excellent. But you are actually already excellent at managing stress. Now, you're looking at me quizzically there because you're thinking, no, you don't know me. But actually, I believe if you live in the 21st century today, you have so many demands and expectations on your life, so, such a multiplicity of pulls, so many responsibilities, that you're juggling stress in a way that none of our predecessors ever had to. You know, the pace of life in the 21st century, even in the last 15 years, is so much greater than it was you know, even, even 50 years ago. The speed of life, the speed of communication, the expectations and the responsibilities. So you are already exceeding the stress management experience of anyone in, in history. And that's an amazing thing. You might not be better than certain individuals uh, who are your peers at the moment, but I can guarantee you'll be better than most people were in the UK in the 1500s. Okay? When people arrived in, when, when raging hordes arrived from the north, you didn't get a tweet telling you that they were just about to arrive. You basically lived or died. Um, when the bubonic plague arrived, or you, know, you, you lived or died. Of course, people got sad and upset quickly, but you didn't have this burgeoning pressure all the time to expect negative things to happen in your life and in your experience. There just wasn't the technology or the societal fabric to make you that stressed. People, dealt, people experienced depression, of course, uh, in vast scale, 
because the people were extremely entrenched. But the sort of stress that we experience today, what we call corporate stress, is a relatively new phenomenon. And I would say you are all experts at dealing with stress. However, stress can get too much even for experts. And then we, we, we have this uh, illustration. Uh, do, you remember? Do, do you remember doing this in physics? Did anyone do this? I hated physics. I gave up before GCSE. Sorry, Marge, who's a physicist of some repute. You know, but you used to have a little stand, and then you'd have this spring, and then you have to identify how many newtons you could put on this, tr this spring. And I, I never really understood what a newton was, other than I knew that was a great person was named Newton Isaac, who was a Christian, who we got very excited about. But um, this spring idea was great. Um, and you added, you had this sort of little metal wire, and then you'd add weights onto this spring. Now, the spring would boing up and down, and would demonstrate that there was a level of kind of springiness still in the spring. My exercise was always to see how much stuff I could put on this spring to, uh, before I could break it. So I wasn't very popular with my physics teacher, but I would always load up this massive like metal canister and like hook it on and be like, boosh, right on the floor, like by the science desk, and this spring would be completely stretched out. He was called Jock McCrane. He wasn't very friendly, I can tell you. Anyway. What, what, taking this idea of the spring, a spring is like your mind. It needs to be springy. It needs to, to flex outwards and flex back inwards. The trouble is too much stress and the spring actually just extends and loses its springiness. And, and the sort of stress is, is this equation between supports, demands and constraints. Okay? So... Uh, we have demands that we're facing. Demands create stress. And our demands uh, plus our supports, or within the context of our, their constraints, results in how stressed we are. So if you've got a demand on you, the demand is the demand that creates stress. The supports are the things that enable you to meet that demand. The constraints are the framework around meeting that demand. So supports could be having Andrew to help me. The constraints, the time frame in which we've got to do the job. Now, if I've got a big job and I've got a small level of support and I've got a contained area of demand, I'm going to get extremely stressed. Yeah? Because actually, I haven't got the resources within me to meet that equation. That's not a good balance. There needs to be a good balance between these things. Supports constraints and demands. Now, we can all deal with certain demands relatively well, and we have the right sort of resources, the right supports to meet their needs, and we have reasonable constraints within which to do that. But if you keep loading them on this spring, too much change, too many demands, too high expectations, too low motivations, and too much conflict, that's when the spring begins to break. Yeah? that's when the spring begins to really overstretch. And, 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 and what, we, what we can think about this is actually, this is just an equation. I, know, I don't understand equations either. But, um, but other people tell me that they, they make sense of things. And, and, and that's really helpful in that this is just an equation. There is not rocket science going on here. This is simple. If you put too much stuff on your plate, for too long, without enough support, then you're going to get into trouble. Yeah? That's reality. 
Now, people always say, and this is really, this, this is one of the things that frustrates me, and this is, this is what I'm going to get you to put your work into practice. People say things like, oh, but I've just got to do it. I've just got to do it. Now, what they do is they, they apply a rule. Do you remember the rules we did in week one? What was my life rule? I have to do it. I just have to. That's a life rule. I just have to do it. It could be Nike. Just do it. It's the, it's the inner critic saying, you've got to do this. There, there is no, no, there's no negotiation about the demands. There's no reconsideration of the supports. Or there's no attempt to change the constraints. There's just this idea, you've just got to do this. You just have to. Okay? Now, generally, what I see in the 21st century are too many people with this life rule. You just have to. You just have to. And in order to develop emotional resilience, I want to, I want to ask you again, do you just have to? Do you just have to? Now, what happens immediately as soon as I say that is, people get angry inside and they do the reaction formation exercise. Remember we did that with um, Anna Freud? She talked about reaction and formation. So what you do is you come back at me angrily and you go, will you live my life then? Oh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to live your life. I'm living mine. They, they, you push it back at me and say, will you tell me what to give up then? Oh, have you done this with your partner if you're married? Or, if you, you know, or with a friend or, or a boss or a colleague? They said, oh, you've got to give some stuff up. Oh, yeah, what? It's reaction formation. I, I'm refusing to allow you to, to question my life rule, and I'm, and I'm pushing the question straight back at you, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm kind of going to try and create a conflict with you that will divert you from the reality that you've got a false life rule. Because that attacks the very heart of this. If the life rule says you have to, and we're attacking that, this person is going to get angry and go, yeah, really? So it's easier to keep that than it is to deal with the heart of the matter. It's easier to, it's easier to say, oh, no, I just have to. Now, of course, when we're saying we have to, we have to look in more detail because all mental health and emotional health issues are dealt with in a kind of vapour where people make great generalisations, and I've made some great ones on the context of this course, which you will have noted, I'm no doubt. But we like to use great generalisations and never look at the detail. And in order to raise your emotional resilience, I want to encourage you to ask questions about the detail. Okay? Ask questions about the detail. That means, if I say to someone, okay, you need to reduce your stress, you need to reduce your demands and your constraints, and you need to increase your supports, they immediately say, I couldn't possibly do that. I just have to. Now, what they're saying is, in general terms, nothing is up for grabs. I'm not willing to look at any of the detail of my life. I'm just telling you, I've got stuff to do and I've got to get it done. Actually, when we look at these, this list, what we'll find is these are generalizations, but within each of these categories will be subcategories of things that actually we don't have to do. It might be that there are things on this list which you just have to do. For example, you might just have to make sure that your child was collected from school every day, because if you don't, you're going to get in real trouble. However, it might also be that you don't have to 
run the AGM for the flower ranging club on Wednesday nights at your house and provide tea and biscuits. It, it just might ha happen to be that you could actually cancel that and pass that on to someone else. It might be that the demands that, you're, that, 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 that are being made of you can be renegotiated in the workplace. I'm a manager. And if my staff team come and say to me, I can't possibly do that, I generally say, OK, let's try and work out a way that we could make something happen here. Let's compromise. Uh, if someone says, actually, this, the, the expectations are too high on me, let's, let's find more realistic ones. The trouble is, again, for many of us, all of this is held in here. It's not that actually things couldn't change. It's that we really don't want them to. We actually, this has become like a badge of honor and actually, we're going around life like the brownies or the, or, the, or the Cub Scouts. And we've got a badge on there that says, I'm Will Vanderhart, and I just had to. You know? And can you see how wounded I am by my life? And like, actually, what I really want is your self-pity. You know, I want you to pity me, and I want you to admire me for all that I've sacrificed. And like, here are my badges. You know, I've done a good job, and I've done it the hard way. It's amazing how people are terrified about asking for help. They don't want to increase the supports because actually they think they should do it themselves. They need to be independent. They need to be self-sufficient. They shouldn't ask anyone to help them out. And actually, and if no one does help them out, then they say, well, I'm going to do it on my own. Watch me bleed. What? No. Just cancel. Just cancel. Like, cancellation is a gift from God. Like, let's just cancel some stuff. Let's say, actually, this spring's going to break. Let's begin to make some changes. Let's look at the detail and do some serious business about how we can increase the supports, reduce the demands, and broaden the constraints. You know, everything is up for negotiation. There's some things which won't actually be able, you won't be able to change. But if we're going to develop emotional resilience, your work here is the management of the spring. And I want to just stress this so hard to you tonight. People think that you basically, at this point, go home and you write a list about the stuff that you want to cut out of your life. And I'm really worried about this because some of you will come to church on Sunday and go, oh, I've been thinking about what you're saying about stress and I've realised I'm just doing so much for church and I've got to give loads of stuff up to create more, um, you know, more, more time and space in my life. So I'd like to come off this rotor and off this group and I want to stop leading this and I want, I want to stop serving on this. Please don't do that. Just change other bits in your life but not the church. Um, the thing is, right, right now, right now, you're... You know, you're in danger of doing this one-hit-wonder approach to emotional resilience, and it's a massive mistake. Your stress levels and your opportunity to give out will fluctuate hugely depending on what else is going on in your life, what life stage you're at, how you're doing physically and generally emotionally, how, how recent your latest holiday was, even what you had for tea. All of that stuff will affect what you're able to give out on a specific day. And, 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 and emotional resilience is about management. It's not about creating hard and fast rules. So it's no point applying a timetable to the rest of your life saying, oh, I can, uh, you know, I can fulfill these three sections, but I can't possibly do any more than those. 
You know, what you have to do is you have to develop the resilience to say, I need to manage this. Some weeks I can do a little more, some weeks I can do a little less, but actually what I need to be sure of is that I'm taking care of this on a daily, if not a weekly basis, yeah? So I'm going to look at how I'm doing and I'm going to cut my cloth according to my purse. Of course, for all of us, we will know that there is a level of idealism about management. Life cannot be managed perfectly. But if in the 60% you're able to manage, then in the 40%, which is just so turbulent and difficult that it seems unmanageable, you will have so much more in the tank. Yeah? You will have so much more. Because if you find yourself then going, going through... Um, you know, going through this cycle, you know, th this, is, this is uncompromising. This really can't be managed. But, but I can tell you, if your starting place here is not here, but is actually down here, you're going to have a lot more work to do. Yeah? You're going to have a lot more work to do. If you've not been managing yourself and taking care of yourself and dealing with your stress levels, if you're hit by the emotional runaway train, you're going to be in, in, in experiencing a lot more pain. And that's why you know, preparation and foresight when it comes to emotional resilience is so important. You know, what, what, what I believe God wants is a church which is emotionally healthy. We, you know, I've, I've done all these talks around the country called Emotionally Healthy Church. And it's about saying, you know, what is that John 10, 10 verse? I want to, you to live life and life in all its fullness. Life in its fullness is not life in all its busyness. You know, and we've exchanged those two words. You know, it, God didn't say, I've come that you may have life and life in all its busyness. Fullness actually involves peace. And God's model is like a, the, the seventh of all his time is spent in rest. And he's God. So, like, what are you doing? A seventh of his time is spent in rest, the Sabbath principle. So you've got to kind of, you've got to understand that the fullness of life is in part engaging with this concept of rest and self-regulation. And I think God's also created us to sleep and to eat and to enjoy. And when I look at the life of Jesus, you know, people say, oh, Jesus is so worthy. They think Jesus worked all the time. But Jesus was really worthy and he didn't work all the time. He spent a lot of his time resting, eating with friends, walking and talking and being up a mountain on his own and probably doing quite a lot of carpentry and a bit of fishing. So he did quite a lot of great stuff. He didn't actually spend his whole time wandering around, healing people, setting people free. It wasn't like that. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, Jesus leaves Simon Peter's house, climbs over lots of people who hadn't yet been healed and then goes up the mountain on his own. And the disciples are coming after him the next day going, hey, what on earth is going on? What, where have you been? It's like, well, where do you think I was going to be? I'm up the mountain spending some time resting with God. They're like, but all these people want to be healed. He's going, yeah, well, I want to rest. I mean, that's it's not rocket science. That's what it says in the Bible. It's totally straightforward. So, so if it's good enough for Jesus, and if it's what God's principle is, then we've got to ask ourselves, why isn't it good enough for us? Well, it's not good enough for us because ultimately we're egocentric, and we want to say, I just had to. I have to. I'm a martyr. I'm going to achieve it. I need to do it on my own without too much support and encouragement. So there's a big challenge. How do we manage the, string of the spring of stress? How are we going to do that? And how are we going to move through this season to do that on a regular basis? Well, a couple of things to do. 
from this experience. One is to kind of try and draw your own spring. Just to kind of a roughly, not, it's not a timetable, it's to roughly identify where you think most of your resources go and to ask yourself, are there ways in which you can increase your resource bank? Are there, are there pressures that you're putting on yourself? And are there limitations which you need to recognize? And then can you make general changes which can begin to bless and support you uh, more greatly? The big caveat to all of this is that this one, expectations, is nearly always held inside. Yeah? That whatever other people expect of you, it's what you expect of yourself which will be the determining factor in your, in your relationship with stress. There's lots of people who are, just, who are relatively relaxed because they just don't really care what you expect of them. They'll give you their best, but they're not going to give you any more than that. There are equally a lot of people who have extremely high expectations of themselves, which other people don't carry for them. Yet they berate and they beat themselves half to death to meet these expectations which they themselves are carrying. And again, it all goes back to that negative inner critic, the super, the super ego that's saying, actually, you've got to be better, you've got to jump this hoop, you've got to get over this line, you've got to achieve all of this, all of this, all of this, all of this, or you're a failure, or you're going to be rejected. So you've got to ask yourself again, are these expectations good for me? Or are they my expectations, or my father's expectations, or my mother's expectations, which are actually damaging my life? I don't believe that that's, again, I don't believe that God wants us to, to live under the weight of this burden of false expectation. I don't, see, I don't see in the Bible, I don't see the characters of the Bible living under that burden. You know, there, there, are, there, there, are, there are sort of this, you know, I, I, I mean, yeah, of course, you see, you know, you could say Joshua struggling with the boots he's got to fill. You know, he's sensed that there's a big expectation there for him. God's message to him is don't fear. I'm with you. You know, I'm going to provide all that you need for this. Uh, there's a lot of calls to say, fear, don't fear man, you know, f- fear God. Well, that doesn't mean be afraid of God. That means, you know, be reverent and respectful and recognize that there are the resources here that you need. Now, I, I think that very many of us, particularly in the church, carry false expectations, you know, for ourselves, which become in themselves a curse and not a joy. Don't live under duty, live under joy. That's a decision as much as it is an experience. Okay, we're going to talk about 10 steps to future-proofing, which is a bit more happy. If I can find some paper. I'm going to have to turn something around, I think. Um, Oh, no, there's something There's a bit of paper here. Okay, um, Rogers and Pearl, these gestalt therapists, talk about five layers of being stuck, and they are the phony layer, that's like the false self, uh, the public layer, that's like the fearful self, so that's like who I'm in public, there's the impasse layer, that's like the person who's the stuck self, there's the implosive layer, that's the disconnected from self-experience, and then there's the explosive layer where there's the relieved self. You don't need to remember all those. But 
But in Gestalt therapy, they talk about these ideas, these levels of being stuck. And they're all different stages of kind of trying to move into a greater sense of self-awareness and what we call a flow. Okay? So this bit of tonight is about this idea of getting in a flow. As I've said about stress, life is not an equation to be resolved, it's, a, it's an experience to be managed okay, and enjoyed. And getting into the flow of life is a term that we use relative to emotional health and well-being to say this is a fluid and a moving and a changing experience. How are you going to get in the flow? Gestalt therapists talk about these five layers of being stuck because the opposite to the flow is getting stuck. And to a level in life, we will all find ourselves kind of sticking or getting stuck at stages. But there will also be times when we can say, oh, you're really in your flow. Does that sound good, doesn't it? It sounds like a kind of, sounds like a kind of bit of a, you know, a surfing analogy or a kind of a, a bit of an 80s disco analogy. We're in the flow. We, we're in the groove. It's very Saturday night fever. Are, are you in a flow right now? Or are you stuck? That's the kind of question we need to ask ourselves. And, and, and this isn't something, again, that we can grab and like say, I'm now in my flow, and for the next 40 years, I'm going to stay in the flow. It's something, again, we have to try and manage the flow. And uh, I do a fair bit of fishing, as you guys know. And um, what, what I notice about some of the rivers that I fish is that actually the terrain is always changing. The, the, particularly when I, I fish down in Devon, I do a lot of bass fishing on the beach. And every time I go, the sands have changed. And all the old salty dog sea fishermen always say, oh, oh, the, 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 the sandbanks are moving, the fish have moved away, you know. And then actually you'll find they're just trying to get rid of you. And there are actually loads of fish there. But you know, they, all, they always start saying, oh, the sandbanks are moving and down in Timmouth and Sheldon. Salty, they call it, the big island in the middle. Salty's moving, salty's moving. The thing is that when there's a good flow, things are shifting. And a good flow carries stuff too. So when you're in a flow, sometimes you'll find that actually things that might potentially block the flow are also moving. So you can be in a good flow and then suddenly stuff starts coming up that actually changes the flow or potentially blocks the flow. You know, stuff is shifted when we're in a flow. And that's why life very often seems to be a season of stops and starts. We're in a flow, and then suddenly we find ourselves coming to a standstill again. And then we clear the blockage, and then we're back in the flow again, and we start moving forward again. Being in the flow is about taking a kind of forward thinking and healthily realistic outlook and saying, I can do this. I've got the resources I need to do this. And I just want to run through these, these ideas uh, for flow. Uh, the first one is a really helpful. I'm, I'm going to give you, should we just have a little break for a few minutes? Because we've got, we've, got, um, we've got about 35 minutes left. And I just think I could probably do this all in half an hour. I think it might be helpful if you just have a, just a five-minute refresher. And, <clears throat> and then we'll, we'll just come into land in this, with this last tet. Is that okay? I think that would probably be a good, a good moment. Let's, uh, let's get this stuff, let's get stuff locked down. We're in our last half an hour of the, of the course. Now, you guys have done really well, by the way. Just listening, you know, I know it's, it's, a, it's a long time. It's a lot to take in, but you, you guys have been doing really well with this, um, with this stuff. Great. Um, just before I go on to this, uh, on to this stuff, 
just a, c a couple of points. Just uh, Hazel asked me a question just a little earlier on. I just want to respond to that. The, the, obviously, the greatest stress you're ever experiencing in life is the stress of relationships. Yeah? And you can manage your own stress. You can learn to be a better manager of stress. But you can't manage the stress of other people. And you can't, you can respond to the expectations of others, but you can't, you can't stop others having expectations of you. Uh, obviously, I'm a vicar, and I'm the subject of a lot of projection. And so, you know, it's, a, it's one of the jobs where you probably get projected on the most. You know, obviously, I represent God in some way to the people of the church. I'm obviously not God, just to make that absolutely clear for the tape. But um, <laughs> the fact that I'm not is very clear, and that's part of the problem. And, uh, you know, the, the sense of expectation that people have for you, uh, for what you're able to achieve, for what you do, how you do it, uh, that's very, very high. And I can't, I can't stop the church having expectations of me. In fact, it would be a disaster if I tried to stop them having an expectation of me. At the same time, I can choose to manage their expectations within me. And if they project onto me that I'm this perfect person, that's their problem they're going to be disappointed. And I need to recognize that I can carry their disappointment, I can, I, can, I can face their disappointment in me and accept that. If I try and meet their expectation, then I'm going to die because it's far too high for me to survive with. Yeah. So, so you cannot stop others expecting things of you, but actually you can manage their expectation within yourself. You will all be subject to expectations from others in different ways. And you will also be at the mercy of others, particularly within family groups, because you just cannot get away from the reality that some of us have got weird siblings, parents, children. That's normal. Yeah? It's normal not to be normal. None of us are normal here, and we will also not have normal family members. When I say normal, I mean people who are flatlining. We're all unique and weird. And so the mix of personality that you're experiencing in your family group will, at some point, create sparks, other points, it will create separation. It's just normative. That said, how you manage what we call your sort of emotional presence, how you, how you, how you hold yourself, your space, is your decision. And I can't really spend an awful lot of time kind of going into this area of work, but, but in, in, certainly in psychoanalysis, there's the idea that, that the sort of the, the sense of self is kind of held, and that, that actually others find themselves diving in to what actually isn't theirs. We have to create boundaries. We have to inform and relate healthily and, and educate about what's appropriate in terms of being overwhelmed by and manipulated by and undermined by. And we have to call behavior what it is. I mean, I find a biblical helpful, biblical principle helpful here, which says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Actually, I found as someone who initially in leadership was slightly concerned about conflict, that that teaching has really helped me to be a better leader. Because rather than kind of softly, softly sort of saying, oh, well, Mrs. Scroggins, you know, if you just, let's just, uh, it's very good what you're doing. It's just, uh, I'm not quite sure it's appropriate right now. Uh, that's, you know, mixing messages. Actually, the important thing is to say, actually, no, that isn't right or helpful. Um, I'd rather you didn't do it. In fact, I don't want you to do it. Thanks very much. You know, that's difficult because it creates conflict, but actually it's about being clear. Uh, Hazel was just mentioning an idea to me called transference, which is, is a complicated concept, and I, I don't think I can do it justice here. But 
This is the idea that, that maybe with a family member or with a friend or someone you're supporting or counselling, they've, they've met with you and they've shared something with you or they've just come and dumped a load of stuff on you. You go away feeling unhappy and they go away feeling brilliant. Thanks very much. That is basically 101 School of Transference. So you had a, you've had a meeting or you've had an interaction and you've gone away carrying away their feelings. That's all it means. It's transferred emotion. Uh, again, in my experience of doing tons and tons of relationships counselling and family counselling in my work, uh, I, I spent years trying to work out why I felt so terrible about things that I hadn't done. <laughs> but other people came to tell me that they had. And then I got a psychotherapist and I'm still with him six years later. So, you know, we still do the business, if you like, in my, in my supervisions of untangling what isn't mine from what is. Now, not many of you are in professions like mine where you would experience that level of transference, other than if you're a professional counsellor, but um, where you'd experience that level of transference that you needed professional supervision to enable you to undo that. The important thing with transference is to, to think carefully about your emotional state before an interaction and then reflect on how it now looks after an interaction. And it, it sounds odd, doesn't it, that someone could come and tell you a load of stuff and you could walk away feeling their emotions. But on another level, it's not that odd. If you think about it again from a sort of ministerial point of view, we often have this deeper connection with one another. I don't, I don't believe that we're all just flesh and blood. I think we're spiritual people. And sometimes when we're ministering here in the power of the Holy Spirit on a Sunday, you know, we share insights and a sense of, of what someone is feeling. I used to spend a lot of time crying when I used to pray for people. I find it very odd. You know, why am I crying? They're crying. Why am I crying? Their tears. You know, why, do I, why am I feeling that sense of, of burden? And it's because you know, we're more than just flesh and blood. And the way to manage transference is to acknowledge transference, really. And it's about, again, it's about challenging the inner narrative, which says, you know, why are you being so ridiculous? Why are you being so emotional? And it's moving away from that to saying, actually, they shared some pretty heavy things with you, or they loaded an awful lot of stuff upon you. Let's just be gentle with you right now. What, what, what are you actually feeling? What do you think is going on? I've gone from not trusting my first instincts to really trusting them. You know, actually, if you've got a gut feeling about something, very often you're probably right, or there's something in it. You know, think about what, do you, what did you first feel? If you've had an interaction with a family member and you've gone away feeling terribly guilty or terribly ashamed or terribly angry, just sit down quietly and spend some time thinking, wow, what did I feel before I had that interaction? What do I feel now? What actually took place there? It's a simple way of just helping yourself to process your emotional experience. You know, and, and again, I think, you know, it can, there can be a time for professional help, but I think that, that, in my experience anyway, has been a helpful way of acknowledging how interactions have power over us and how we can not undo that power, but how we can recognise it, what it is for itself. Because I always think, I need to know, am I feeling guilty for me or for them? If I'm feeling guilty for them, I can go to sleep. But if I'm feeling guilty for me, I've got to do something about it. Yeah, so work out what's yours and work out what's theirs. That is a difficult process, and that's why it can be a good thing to do with someone who is a professional. They can guide you uh, in that way. And there are some great books about 
this area of transference and analysis, which you could read if you want, if you want to spend more time doing that. Great, well, let's come into these 10 life-giving attitudes as a way of concluding this course, because you've, you've got a whole lot of stuff uh, to carry away with you, but I want you to kind of take with you this, this idea about these, these 10. And um, the first one is about uh, taking emotional responsibility and accepting. Now, the first one sounds quite complicated, but what I want to try and do is get you to go away with this stuff within you. This is your opportunity to do things differently, to find greater freedom. It is, in some people's experience, everyone else's fault that everything has gone wrong. You'll know these people. Maybe you are this person. So-and-so was nasty to me. So-and-so let me down. So-and-so has just been unpleasant. So-and-so didn't do what they said they would. So-and-so, you know, I, I, you know, everyone out there is doing everything wrong that's making you feel bad. Honestly, your life will never be free if it is everyone else's fault that you're in this particular position. Okay? It is held here. Taking emotional responsibility and beginning to accept your experience is the first way of living well in the flow. It's about saying, actually, I'm feeling this. All of these things might be catalysts towards these feelings, but I'm going to not fight this. I'm going to accept that I feel angry, or I feel disappointed, or I feel frustrated. Taking emotional responsibility is saying, this stuff is in me. No one's forcing me to do this right now. This is how I am feeling. If you own the material, you can change the material. If you're saying you don't own it, you can't change it. Ultimately, we cannot spend our whole lives trying to make our emotional world safe by going around trying to neutralize or fix other people. You can be in the middle of a storm and it can be in a place of perfect peace if you can hold it within you. And that's been the truth for lots of Christian fathers and mothers throughout the ages who've found themselves in all sorts of destitute and desperate situations proclaiming perfect peace in prison or just about facing Diocletian's you know, um, purge of the Christians, saying, I'm at perfect peace in this storm because the feeling is in here. Okay? So that's the first one, taking responsibility. The next one is about letting go or being flexible. I would say to you, as a Christian leader, more than anyone involved in the psychological world, that forgiveness is a great healer. It's the greatest healer in your life experience. For all that's happened in the past and for all that will happen in the future, forgiveness is God's gift to our emotional selves. You know, it is what we've experienced through Christ. And if you want to know more about that, I want to welcome you to come and see more about that at Easter time. But it's also what we have as a mirror of God's divine offering to us in his son that we might share that with one another. And, and, and forgiveness liberates us from all sorts of negative emotion. And it really helps us out of the stream of blame and critique and condemnation. And if you can't forgive someone else, you equally cannot forgive yourself. And this is one of the main problems that people actually have. You know, in terms of moving on to the future, people cannot let go of the past, not because they're genuinely upset about what everyone else has done, because they're genuinely upset about what they have done. You know, the, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray was, was that I might you know, be forgiven for, for things I've done wrong as I forgive those who've done wrong things against me. 
And that forgiveness is both from God and from self. But if we can't offer forgiveness to others, we cannot receive forgiveness for ourselves. Yeah? You have to plant the seed that you hope to harvest. And if you plant forgiveness, you'll, receive, you'll reap a harvest of forgiveness. But if you don't plant that seed, you ain't going to reap a harvest. So I want to encourage you to think about that. And people say to me again, I cannot forgive that person. But, you know, they say that, 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 un, that, that you know, unforgiveness is like, is like drinking poison and hoping that the other person's going to die. You know? You're drinking poison and hoping that the other person's going to die. It's going to kill you. It's not going to help you. So letting go is about forgiving and actually recognizing that the past is the past. And then being flexible. Nothing is black and white. We've talked about responsibility pie. We've helped you think about things more realistically, more broadly, and more uncertainly. The next one is about um, valuing individuality. and expectation. You are an individual. I've said you're weird. I hope you're not offended. I'm quite weird too. But we are all weird in the sense that there is no mean to humanity. We are all unique. We are all individual. We all have our own quirks and strangeness about us. It's what makes you brilliant. If you want to engage in the future more and enjoy the future more, we've got to stop trying to be someone else and actually begin to be ourselves. And this idea is, you know, this is, this is about being fully human. And being fully human is not being a robot or an automon. It's about being the person that you are. And I believe this very strongly as a Christian leader, that, that God's calling us to, to the redemption of our unhumanity, to our true humanity. And actually, God created man and woman in his image, and he's restoring man and woman to his image. Actually, we're called on this journey of redemption. He's created you, I believe, uniquely and wonderfully. It says in the Psalms that you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so finding that uniqueness and celebrating that is a really important way of engaging with the future. And having expectations that you might be more yourself, not less yourself, can really help you. you know, when, when things are tough, uh, but you know you're being authentic, that's a good thing. If, you, if you're selling a phony self, you're never going to be truly free. People can't keep that sort of stuff up, and other people read that. Be yourself and engage uh, in yourself. Recognize that you're truly unique and value that individuality. Recognize that that is, that is you, and that is a good thing. And if you want to be loved by others, show them the real you and let them really love you. People who are loved by loads of people but don't believe that they're showing who they really are don't really know what love is because they've never really felt it, because they think everyone else loves the person that they're not, okay? The next thing is, that it is about accepting life is hard. This is an odd one to put in, but it's amazing. Again, if we're going to be future-proofing our emotions, that, that some people are fine as long as everything is going their way. Have you, have you, are you one of these people? Or have you, have you, do you know people who are like this? Everything is fine, but everything has to be great around them. As soon as there's something off kilter, everything is terrible and they, they're falling off the wagon. And, and what I want to say to you is that, is that they have an expectation of life that's unrealistic. They think that life is like a fairground and that they are just locked out of the playground, which is unfair. 
And what they tend to do, their visual, their bias, we talked about earlier with Anita, their bias is towards identifying other people who are having a great time and then recognizing that they're having a terrible time. What they don't do is they don't compare downwards. Have you noticed that? That's another human principle. We never compare downwards. We only compare upwards. So people never say, oh, I'm richer than so-and-so. They will say, oh, I'm poorer than so-and-so. They never say, oh, I'm better than so-and-so. They will say, I'm worse than so-and-so. They recognize that other people are better. If we, we do this, you know, we're in the richest 9% of the world's population. No one ever compares us to the people who live in Guatemala or Eritrea or, you know, Somalia. They don't compare it. We, we, we never, the newspapers never go, wow, shock horror. We are completely loaded compared to people who live in Mogadishu. They say, oh, we're really poor compared to the Germans. Like, why is that? Why, why do we do that? When actually the reality is that we've got loads. We only like to compare upwards like that. We only like to say, oh, so-and-so, he's got a bit more than me. If you want to live happy, accept that life is hard. Life is tough. Life's full of challenges. It was never meant to be any other way. When the world fell, it's a tough world. Okay, that's the reality. That's the world that we live in. It's not a perfect playground. It's tough. And it's tougher for some people than it is for others. You could say accepting that life's unfair is as helpful, if not more helpful, than just accepting that life is hard. Because otherwise you spend your whole time in the playground, and it's not fair, it's not fair, it's not fair. And you can't grow if life's not fair. Okay, we need to value relationships, and we need to reject approval-seeking. And this one, this one links to expectations, but we need to reject approval-seeking. Now, some people are what we call approval addicts. So they spend the whole time going around trying to gain the approval of other people. Approval addiction is a really, really unhelpful disease, but it's a very much a disease of the 21st century. You know, it's, you know, we have so many manifestations of ourselves. Approval addiction is Facebook-heavy. It's Twitter-heavy. You know, you've, it's dating site heavy, it's match.com. You know, it's, you have a profile of yourself and you let other people like you. You know, if I had that many friends that I've got on Facebook in real life, I would probably have a nervous breakdown. They don't know me. I don't know who they are. I, don't, I, I feel terrified that I've not fulfilled my friendly obligation to them. But they like stuff and I like their stuff and I don't even know what that means. Sometimes they poke me and that's, that's just odd. But isn't it weird? You know, we live in an, an approval addiction culture and, 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 and we live and die by the media. You know, all of our soaps are filled with, with archetypes which are about approval seeking or rejection. And if we live with a desire to be approved, ultimately we're not going to live free, flexible lives in the flow. We're going to be tethered by the expectations of others. On the mix with that, I would say that the relationships keep us in the flow, but that love, I'm going to put in brackets, love is not guaranteed. Love is not guaranteed. This, 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 this is something that everyone needs to get a handle on, okay, is that Again, this can be something in church that is kind of an expectation which I think is very, very unhelpful. 
is that the, the married people are happy and the single people are unhappy. And actually that, that, <clears throat> that life or God owes them a partner to love them. And, and sadly, the reality is that that isn't the case for Christians or non-Christian people, that actually some marital relationships aren't very filled with love, which is a sad thing, but it's a reality. And, and some single people actually are feeling more love than some of the people who are married. That's also a reality. Life is filled with challenge. Relationships are key, but love is not a guarantee. And the other, re- the other way in which we can get out of the flow is by waiting for that, the one. So basically, our future life hangs on whether or not we feel that love. And if we don't feel it, we're not able to live. And actually, I would want to say that, that part of living free and flexibly in the flow is about valuing all of our relationships and, and, and sensing, I pray, the love of God, the love platonically of our friends and, and of our families. But that romantic love is not a guarantee and, and if we're going to live well in the flow, we have to just accept that and not let that be the diktat for the rest of our lives. I'm just going to say, it doesn't put that out there, just to help you think about this love in the flow. Okay. The next one you, you're not going to like either. <laughs> and that's tolerate a level of discomfort. I talked a bit on this course about being pain-averse. You know, I can't possibly do that because I feel too uncomfortable. I told you about my friend who was on the tube and has, her, her therapist is dropping polos on the tube because she's got a phobia of, of unclean food and she's got a phobia of the tube. So she's following the therapist around in the tube eating polos all day to get over that. Okay? If she didn't tolerate a level of pain, she's never going to get over her phobia. She's never going to get through that. And, and, and if we're even the slightest bit emotionally pain-averse, we're not going to try any of the experiments that I've suggested to you because you're going to go, oh, that makes me feel uncomfortable. Whereas, hello, of course it makes you feel uncomfortable. Otherwise, you would have done it already. Typically, with the things that I'm suggesting, if you feel uncomfortable, the likelihood is it's working. Yeah? If you're going to stretch, it's going to hurt. If you're going to stretch out and begin trying new things, it's going to feel weird to begin with. If you can't tolerate a level of uncertainty and discomfort, then you're really not going to grow. So recognize that you have to, at times, tolerate a level of pain. Okay. The next one I want to put up is, um, is faith. You might think that I'm cheating here because I'm a vicar. But uh, I want to tell you that actually most of the best psychological manuals place faith as one of the benefits of life in the flow. They say that actually those people who have faith beyond themselves, and they don't stipulate what faith, but I'm going to suggest that the Christian faith is a good place to start, and that faith is something that can help you to focus outside of yourself and to receive great benefit. I mean, I believe in a God of love who loves us unconditionally. All of those things are extremely healing. Uh, God who forgives, which again is extremely healing, and the community that loves, which is again extremely healing. And so life in the flow is about coming outside of ourselves and sharing in faith. I'd also suggest to you guys, and this is my own principle idea, it's not something that's psychologically rooted, but, but that we might have, that we've been designed, I often say, to have a faith component. 
But actually, if we're not engaging in that component, we're missing a part of ourselves. And I'd like to encourage you to think a bit more about that maybe at this, this Easter time. The next one is, is pursue things that give you life. The reason I say this, you might think this is totally obvious, but it's amazing how many people just hope that the things that they love are just going to come upon them. You know, that, that they say things like, I haven't been on holiday in years. I haven't been on holiday for years. You're going, and? Oh, I've been on holiday for years. You're going, well, what do you think? Like, you know, Thompsons arrive at your house, knock on the door and say, hello, here's a holiday for you. Would you like to go on holiday? And they're like, oh, well, no, I didn't think that. Well, I was saying, well, have you been saving for a holiday for years? Oh, no. Have you planned a holiday? Oh, no. Have you talked to anyone else about holidays? Oh, no. So what were you thinking then? Were you thinking that it was just going to happen? You'd suddenly be vaporized into a TARDIS and you're going to appear in Bahamas with Mike. Is that what's going to happen? No, of course it's not. And, and, and that's an extreme example for a common experience. If you don't pursue your goals, if you don't seek actually to find those places, those activities, those engagements that give you life, you will miss out on those things. And then what happens is we become bitter and we start saying things like, oh, it never goes my way. You know, it, it's so obvious, it's ridiculous. You have to pursue the things that give you life. You have to actually go after them, seek them out. How are we doing? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine... I've seen my numbers have slightly drifted. The last one is my old favourite. There's a chapter in the worry book on this. Tolerate uncertainty. Okay? I've said a lot about flexibility in the flow throughout this course. And a flexible mindset is one that recognises that it needs to be adaptive, not maladaptive. You cannot be certain of your existence, your experience, your relationships, your workplace. And we have a temptation, I think, particularly in this age that we live in, where everything can be predicted and resolved. Okay? And that leads to an awful lot of people working extremely hard, particularly worrying all the time, that actually another problem is going to be coming that they can fix. And they're on netdoctors.com at 10.30 at night, you know, finding out whether the bleeding gums really does mean that they've got you know, myxomatosis or something. Okay? No. But bleeding gums have about a thousand different kind of potentials to make you ill, but you cannot eradicate the possibility that you really have got something nasty. At the same time, it's really not worth worrying about. You should go to sleep. We have to tolerate uncertainty if we're going to live free in the flow. And, and that's true for everything. You know, we have to deal with uncertainty. And, and I just want to encourage you that living flexibly is saying, actually, I don't know the answer. And it doesn't matter. There's so few things where actually we need to know. In the Bible, in Matthew 6, it says, it says don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's got enough cares of its own. It doesn't say don't worry about today. It says today's got enough cares of its own. It's suggesting, actually, you've got enough problems right now, mate. You don't be worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow. 
You've got to deal with what's happening in the here and now. Tolerating uncertainty is really helpful because it helps us to be productive in problem solving in our immediacy. And I think a lot of what I've said to you on this course is about dealing with what's actually going on now. That helps you to live in the future. By dealing with the now, you can actually deal with tomorrow. I tend to live every day at a time, and that helps me to be thankful, which if I was going to put a number 11 on, it would be be grateful. Be grateful. I'm obviously a man of faith, so I spend a lot of time giving thanks to God for different things. I find it much easier to give thanks to God for, t for today than I do for tomorrow. It drives Drew's absolutely mad because I often haven't got a clue what I'm doing, so I haven't even looked at my diary. But, um, but, but actually, I found that I became slave to my diary, slave to the future, slave to what might ha happen or what I needed to do, and actually stopped enjoying my life, stopped living actually in the present and saying, wow, God, thank you for the people I'm with, for, for, for this opportunity that you've given me right now. Live now, live free, live flexibly, live in the flow. Okay? So, 10 things to keep you flexible in the flow, and number 11 would be be grateful. Wow. It's a strong Yahoo end, isn't it, to, to all this stuff. Great. Thanks, friends, for, for this. Uh, can I answer a few questions at the end? You know, uh, anyone got any, any questions they'd like to ask? Mike? What do I think of NLP? I'm not a fan of NLP. Um, and uh, you might have come across lots of self-help books. There was a phase of self-help books in the 90s they were all NLP-based, and there was an awful lot of NLP therapists. Neurolinguistic programming is effectively a... If, if we think about the mind as an, onion, as an onion skin... I really haven't got any paper left. But if you think about the, the mind as an onion... I'm going to draw on something. There's going to be some onion. Oh, that'll do. OK, so if, if this is our onion here... OK, now... Obviously, I've talked to you all about uh, the different parts of this onion and that said deep down in the, center, in the center of it is that kind of inner self, that core ego identity. NLP is a form of cognitive layering that basically tries to put hard casing on our thoughts and feelings. And it's, it's effectively saying things like, if you just think positively, I am happy, I am happy, I am happy, I am happy, you will be happy. Well, you will be happy for a very short period of time. But is it true happiness? It's totally not true happiness because actually it's just a layer of the skin of the onion and inside is a very unhappy person. Unfortunately, the evangelical conservative tradition also uses this same technique, NLP. What they do is they tell you to repeat a verse a thousand times, perfect love casts out all fear, perfect love casts out all fear, perfect love casts out all fear. You do it until you, they say, you do it until you believe it. No, you're not doing it until you believe it. You're programming yourself to automatically recall it when you're feeling afraid. And actually, that's just NLP. It doesn't mean that this person is any less afraid. It just means that they've, they've learned on a light level, on a cognitive layering level, that actually they shouldn't be afraid. So it's deeply unhelpful. I, 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 I find it. And actually, most therapists now, certainly any credentialed psychotherapist, would laugh in the face of NLP. OK? It's a bit strong, isn't it? Any others? <laughs> any other questions, burning questions? No? OK. Well, look, this is an introduction to emotional health. 
there are places that you can go and things that you can do if you'd like to explore further. And I, I just want to encourage you that if stuff's come up, you know, it can be helpful to talk it through with a professional person. You know, if you want some signposting, then you can chat to me. Have a look at the mindandsoul.info website. There's tons of stuff on there that you might feel helpful or interesting. And I'm going to post up the four sessions in a special box for you guys uh, that you can access when I'm going to send you all a code by email. So you can go in there and you can listen back to the sessions and pick up things that you might have missed. OK. Thanks very much. It's been brilliant.